Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders for our church here. <clears throat> when someone does you wrong, have you wrestled with the question of what to do in response? And I'm not talking about something petty that just offends you. I'm talking about when someone has clearly violated your rights or your well-being, causing you real damage. What do you do with that? I mean, God is a God of mercy, right? And he's a God of justice. So does his mercy require you to back down and let the offender off the hook? Or does his justice require you to step up and resist them or put up some sort of a fight? When do you sing hymns in the arena waiting patiently for Roman lions to devour you? And when do you start dumping English tea into Boston Harbor? If you haven't wrestled with these questions, the day is coming when you will. The day when someone breaks into your house and robs you. Or when a wicked government moves against our church for so-called hate crimes. Or when your sensitive information gets hacked and evil people use your identity to siphon your assets and wreck your life. What will you do? And what role should either justice or mercy play in your response? And how do you decide? Well, this morning we continue our study of the book of Nahum. We pick up in verse 11 of chapter 2. If you have one of the church Bibles from the lobby, it's on page 735. In this passage, we'll see the Lord take a fundamental principle of justice, something upon which his entire system of justice is based, and he will apply that principle not only to an individual criminal, but to a wicked nation. And let me warn you, this week's passage will get increasingly graphic and disturbing as it goes. The Lord speaks this way through his prophet to help us learn how to respond to the evil that is committed against us. And the fundamental principle, the main idea of this sermon, is that what oppressors give is what they'll get. What oppressors give is what they'll get. That simple principle will have remarkable implications for the way God's people ought to conduct themselves when they are oppressed. Let me pray for our time in God's word. Our Father, please open our eyes and grant us much comfort through this prophet of comfort, Nahum. May we see Jesus in his way more clearly 
that we might respond the way you would have us respond when we are oppressed, when we face evil. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To help you respond to oppression, the first thing you need is assurance that devourers will themselves be devoured. That's our first point. Devourers devoured. This is verses 11 through 13 of Nahum chapter 2. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. We'll stop there for now. God, in this passage, continues speaking about the evil empire of Assyria, that nation that Nahum has been speaking about from the beginning, and especially he's speaking about the capital city of Nineveh. And God promises that the devourers will themselves be devoured. In verse 11, he likens Assyria to a den of lions. They are the king of beasts. They are the kings of the jungle. They have preyed upon all other nations on earth. Now, from their perspective, in verse 12, they have simply been trying to feed their families. They're tearing up prey for the lionesses and the cubs. But because they have devoured nations and peoples, verse 13, God says he is now against them. And the sword will now devour their young lions. They will not be able to find any further prey. Those who have devoured others will themselves be devoured. That's the whole point of this first part of the poem. The devourers will themselves be devoured. This sets up the main idea that will carry through the the remaining two stanzas of our text as well. God's justice requires that what Assyria has done will be done back to her. What oppressors do to others will be done back to them. This principle is a bedrock concept in the revealed law of God. It takes a certain form in the law of Moses, those early books of the Bible that you might have heard before. Here's how it's stated in Exodus 21. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. 
This is a foundational principle in God's criminal justice system. And the reason this becomes an important principle encoded into the civil laws of Israel is to prevent vigilante justice. The point of this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law of retribution is is because if you steal my sheep, I am not permitted to go and burn down your house in return. If you punch me in the face, I am not permitted to assassinate your cousin in return. No, the point is that if someone steals a sheep, they lose a sheep of their own. If someone knocks out a tooth, they lose a tooth of their own, or at least they have to pay an equivalent cost. What God does in the book of Nahum is he takes that principle of criminal justice and he applies it on a grand scale to an entire nation. The eye for an eye principle of justice applies not only to individuals convicted in court, but it also applies to evil empires who violate human rights. God assures his people that the oppressor will themselves experience the same destitution that they have inflicted on others. Having used the sword to make others bereaved and destitute, a sword will be brought against them, bringing bereavement and destitution. What oppressors give is what they'll get. That establishes the principle. Let me show you how the next two stanzas reiterate that principle in escalating ways. And then I'll get to some application at the end. So our second section in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, we see betrayers betrayed. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, Flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. This fascinating bit of poetry begins with a curse being pronounced. Woe to the bloody city. The beginning of verse 1. The word woe means a curse being pronounced. And it then goes on to describe that curse, that woe that will befall the city. But it it does it in a pretty indirect way. What, What Nahum does with his poetry is he paints a picture, a word picture of sounds. You hear the whip cracks, the chariot wheel rumblings, the horse gallops, the metal weapons clanging, and it builds to a picture of utter horror, piles and piles of corpses in verse 3, death so widespread that the grave diggers simply can't keep up with the demand. 
And the poetry does all this through this quick sequence of very short phrases. There's no complete sentences here, just a string of disconnected two and three word phrases. It's jarring and it's disconcerting. And by the time you complete the description of dead bodies without end, in verse 3, you can practically smell the rotting flesh and you feel a queasiness rising up within you. But why? Why is this happening? Why does Nahum describe it this way? Verse 4 explains it to us. This is all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. He's shifted metaphors. In the stanza before this, Nineveh was like a den of lions. But now he wants you to see that Nineveh is also like a dolled up sex worker. A person who makes her living off of making herself attractive to others so that they will pay her money in order to be with her. Nahum describes this prostitute in verse 4 as graceful and of deadly charms. The thing is, Nineveh has been turning on the charm and the beauty in order to ensnare others. What that looks like politically is that Nineveh has sought to frighten the world into submission. Nineveh has formed alliances and attract nations into alliances with her by promising them protection to one people group against another, only to then betray that commitment and become the very thing people need to be protected against. It's as though Nineveh says, sure, I'll paint myself up so you come and spend the night with me. But when you leave in the morning, you won't be able to find your wallet. So what Nahum does here poetically is to describe an empire that for generations has tried to seduce the peoples of the world into alliances only to stick the knife in between their ribs in the end. And that empire will now itself be seduced and betrayed. The pretty, attractive young lady will become heaps of rotting carcasses. If that imagery disturbs you, it's because it ought to. And we're not into the really offensive part yet. But this is how God views oppressive evil and violence. Those who practice it will have it return to them. Those who rob others will be robbed themselves. Those who degrade and violate the humanity of others will be reduced to something less than human themselves. This is only just, and it is not pretty. What oppressors give is what they'll get. Betrayers will themselves be betrayed. And that brings us to the third and final word picture of this poem, the most degrading and horrific part. Yet, the shamers will be shamed in verses 5 through 7. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. 
And I will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who will look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? For the second time in this passage, God says five words you should wish never to hear from him. Behold, I am against you. And in his opposition to Nineveh, he holds nothing back. He takes the previous metaphor of a prostitute and he cranks up the intensity. Oh, you want to expose yourself to people in private for money, do you? Well, why not take that exposure on a world tour? And God describes in horrific detail what he himself will do to her. He describes the shame he will bring on her, removing her proper clothing so that she is publicly exposed in her nakedness, putting her on display in the global marketplaces so that powerful people can see her and shame her. When he says he will throw Filth, in verse 6, the, the sense of such filth is, according to one lexicon, any substance considered disgustingly foul or unpleasant with an emphasis on the person touching it becoming detestable or unclean. What God is saying in verse 6 is, oh, you like wearing makeup, do you? Well, let's use some human feces as your mascara. Let's go to the hospital and get some hazardous biological waste and use that as your lipstick. This is why, in verse 7, anyone who sees her naked and painted with excrement considers her a complete waste. Such a shame and a liability that they can't even find anyone who's willing to grieve for her. How can the Bible be this crude and disgusting? How could God ever promise something so dehumanizing and damaging to a people group? Well, each of these three stanzas we've now looked at escalates the horror and the obscenity, but they're doing so in order to make the same point with increasing force and vividness. The point is that what oppressors give is what they'll get. You see, Nineveh wants a world where it gets to do whatever it wants to other people and nations. And that includes destitution, betrayal, and utter shame. 
So God returns back on them the very things they have done to others. In his final judgment of them, he will give them a world where what they dish out has returned to them. This is how his justice works on a global scale. So with respect to the shame of this third stanza, consider... Consider how the punishment of nakedness perfectly fits the crime. Assyria used to take people captive, strip them naked, and force them to march that way across the deserts of the Middle East. And God is giving them a world where they get to labor under their own HR policies and where they get to experience the same sort of benefits they have granted to their own mergers and acquisitions. Consider the thing about throwing filth at them. Before this, Assyria had laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and they issued a very similar taunt to the soldiers of Judah. They threatened the soldiers of God's people with human excrement. It's in 2 Kings 18, verse 27, where the representative of the king of Assyria says, if you resist me, the men defending the wall are doomed to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine. God himself heard that taunt, and he wrote it down in his book to make sure he could remember it word for word. Because he's going to fling it right back at Assyria just like splashes of sewage on a hot day. What oppressors give is what they'll get. This is how God's universe works. You can't outsmart him. The evil of the oppressor will return back to that oppressor. They will get to taste their own medicine in the end. That goes for ancient Assyria. It goes for the tyrants and dictators and arrogant governments of any time or any place. It goes for anyone in this room oppressing the members of their own households. It will not be pretty. We should not pretend otherwise. But what effect ought this to have for those who have entered into the kingdom of God? Those who have pledged their allegiance to Jesus Christ and who seek to serve him. What oppressors get, or excuse me, what oppressors give is what they'll get. Okay, we've got that point, but what impact does that principle have on the people of God when they themselves face oppression. Well, that takes me to some application to close out this sermon. By way of application, I have one thing we must believe which fuels two things we must do. Okay, one thing we must believe which fuels two things we must do. Here is the thing we must believe. Vengeance belongs to God. We must believe that vengeance belongs to 
God. When you are the victim of oppression, you must believe that vengeance belongs to God. This is what Nahum was written for to comfort God's people to let them know that God was about to take vengeance. The New Testament book of Romans speaks to those who have been rescued from sin and death by the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have trusted him to lead them into the new world he's bringing, but they are still often the victims of oppression and violence. And here's how Paul, the author of Romans, instructs them to act in accordance with their trust in Jesus. In Romans 12:19, he says, "Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do you hear how Paul addresses his people? He calls them beloved those who are the objects of God's unfailing and unbreakable love. And he tells them to never avenge themselves on their enemies. And he gives them a solid reason to motivate them in this. And that reason is based in the doctrine of the wrath of God. God has said that vengeance is his. The point is that you do not have to make that person pay for what they have done to you. God himself will take up your cause and he will make them pay for what they have done to you. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you to believe that vengeance belongs to God. This is something to which we must hold fast as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. Nahum wrote his book of prophecy for this very purpose, to remind the people of Judah that God will avenge them. That's how the book started. God is an avenger. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. And so the New Testament reminds us of the same. This is why Christianity is not for the weak of heart. This religion we profess is not simply a body of ethics and philosophy turning us into nice people who maybe at times become weak-kneed scaredy-cats. No, it takes incredible courage to trust and to tell the world about a God who will repay every person according to what they have done, whether good or evil. We serve a God who raised his son from the dead to vindicate him in public view of all the world for all time. And everything this man said was true. That includes the fact that he is God. It includes the fact that he created everything. And it includes the fact that he said that he will one day chop down every person and nation that does not produce the sort of behavior he commands of them. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we can be assured that he is the king of heaven and earth. And there is not a single bad guy on the planet who will get away with his dark deeds for very long. 
all will be brought to account. And what oppressors give is what they'll get. Vengeance belongs to God. Brothers and sisters, you must believe this because if you don't believe this, you'll never be able to do the two things your king asks you to do. The first thing he asks you to do is to restrain yourself from avenging yourself. Restrain yourself from avenging yourself. In Romans 12:19, which I already read, it begins by saying, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Just before that, in verse 17, Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And this is so hard, because when someone attacks you, it feels so right to attack them back. When they speak ill of you, it feels only just That you speak ill in return. And we must not do this. When I was a young man, I once experienced a campaign of slander against my character. And my immediate inclination was to fight back. And I did. I made sure that people knew all about the sins of the people who were slandering me. I never said anything that was untrue, but I wanted to make sure people knew what sort of person it was that they were listening to. You can't really trust this guy. Let me tell you all the terrible things he's done. This feels so right, so just in the moment. The problem with it is that it's Trying to take God's place. It's saying that vengeance belongs to me. And you see, once you and I begin to take vengeance on someone, we have now gotten in the way of the vengeance God might have taken on them. And his vengeance will always be more effective. And now he needs to deal with my wrongdoing as well. You see, in that situation, I won some friends back, but I lost a lot of other friends. Some people who might otherwise have come to see through the slander on their own, they actually began to see me as someone who could not be trusted with private information. I had violated confidences with all of my accusers' personal information and their secret sins. And what I needed was restraint and trust in God's vengeance. This doesn't mean you can't ever defend yourself. Sure, speak up when you're being accused. And I'm not saying that there's no place for godly resistance to oppression. There's a time and a place for that. Nahum's not taking us there yet. Other parts of the Bible will help us with that. But I'm saying here only that we need to be very careful that our attempts at defense 
or at resistance, they don't actually, they're not actually acts of vengeance. That's the first thing to do is to restrain yourself from taking vengeance on your oppressor. The second thing God asks us to do is even harder than that. It's not enough to simply not do evil back to them. The Bible goes on to say that we must even go out of our way to do good to them. That's the second thing to do. Do good to them. Romans 12, it continues to say, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, he is the one who could have blasted those who came to arrest him. In fact, he proved that he could. That night they came to arrest him. He spoke a word and they all just fell to the ground. And then he healed the man who got his ear cut off. And then he prayed for the forgiveness of the people who hung him on a cross. Even before that, he washed the feet of the man who would betray him and set his execution in motion. In Jesus' day, the, the principle, God's principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that principle of justice had been so twisted as to be actually used as justification for personal vengeance rather than letting the courts deal with things. It was exactly the opposite of what God intended it for. And so in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus corrects that misconception. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic Let him have your cloak as well. Now, Jesus will not be patient and kind with oppressors forever. But he was very clear that until he comes to take them all down in the end, the way we follow him now is to follow him in doing good to our enemies. This is not a path of weakness. This is a path of strength. This is not about repression and masochism and just letting yourself be beat up. This is about overcoming evil. Actually conquering evil. And God's appointed battle plan for overcoming it is to overcome it by doing good. You see, what oppressors give is what they'll get. I open this sermon by asking the question, how will you respond to oppression? We now have an answer to that question from Nahum, from Paul, and from Jesus. We must believe in the just, measured, and certain wrath of God. That is the only thing that will enable us to not execute our own wrath on others. Now you can always... To hold yourself back, you can always say to them, just you wait. I don't have to do anything. 
Just you wait and see what comes. Christ will return their dark deeds on their own heads so we don't have to. And because we believe that, that vengeance belongs to God, we can do two things. We can restrain our vengeance and we can do good to our enemies. As we do good to our persecutors, then either they will be shocked into repentance or they will increase their own condemnation in the day of trouble. But either way, please be encouraged. You will not have to suffer forever. God will ensure that justice is done and you are avenged. Devourers will themselves be devoured. Betrayers will themselves be betrayed. And shamers will themselves be shamed. The Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns forever at the right hand of his Father, will ensure that what oppressors give is what they'll get. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, please give us much comfort and confidence and security in this belief in the wrath of God that is coming for all. And may that give us hope and power and courage to do what Jesus has called us to do now, to restrain ourselves from vengeance and to do good to our enemies. As we do so, Lord, we ask that you would please save some, snatch them from the fire, shake them up into repentance. And Lord, we ask that you would please return the evil of those who will not serve you back on their heads. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.